From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Even with a pandemic gripping the world, I was reminded last week when Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race that 2020 is still a presidential election year. Healthcare has been an integral part of the Democratic debate, and the focus on healthcare and politics isn't going away. In fact, a global pandemic only puts a bigger spotlight on healthcare. Now, before we dive in to this episode's details, let me just get ahead of a question that I'm sure is on everyone's mind. Like everyone, we all have our own personal politics, but this is not that podcast. Advisory Board is a nonpartisan institution, so today we're going to be focusing on the policies on the table and what those proposals could mean for the healthcare industry. To help us have that conversation, I've brought back my colleague and head of executive insights for Advisory Board, Christopher Kearns. Hey, Christopher. You can call me Wendy or Christopher. So, Christopher, you have been at Advisory Board for just under 15 years. So if I'm counting correctly, that means you've been researching the healthcare industry and the implications of health policy across three administrations. What's felt different about this primary run? You mean besides the fact that we started with 27 candidates? Besides that. (laughs) I think what's really different about this race, especially when it comes to the healthcare debate, is that things that would have once been thought of as a revolutionary change have really become very mainstream. And they have been brought to the policy forefront in 2019 and 2020. So it's easy to forget, but keep in mind that eight of the original Democratic candidates supported Medicare for All, and 19 have supported a public option, as the presumptive nominee Joe Biden currently does. And that in and of itself is is pretty amazing, right? So how exactly did we get there from one lone candidate endorsing Medicare for All in 2016 to this huge wave of candidates supporting major change in the healthcare industry in 2020? Well, we know that the healthcare industry isn't exactly popular right now. Gallup tracks the public's perception of 25 different industries across the U.S., and healthcare currently ranks 23rd in support, only slightly above the pharma industry and the federal government. (laughs) And only 34% of people have positive views about the healthcare industry. So there's a lot of consternation about it, but I think the question you're asking is where does that consternation actually come from? One is the continued uncertainty around coverage and coverage expansion. As we know, the ACA continues to be in danger, and there are a lot of people who feel as if they are one job loss away from losing their insurance, or at least losing the insurance that they like. I think there's also a significant consternation that comes from the increased costs that every consumer is bearing right now, Hmm. with the increases in patient obligations that have come along with high deductibles and high premiums. That's right. And I think that the other issue on the table now, especially with COVID, is just public health being at the center of the conversation. And honestly, public health was part of the conversation beforehand, too. You know, when we looked at life expectancy, it declined before this election year for two years in a row. And a lot of that was driven by the so-called deaths of despair, the opioid epidemic, suicides, etc. And there was a growing perception, I think, among the populace that for all the costs that they are increasingly bearing for healthcare, they are not getting as much from it as they would expect. And that has caused a lot of different voters to seek out other options. Now, that does not necessarily mean that that means a majority of people are going to want whatever flavor of public option or Medicare for all is offered, but it does mean that voters are shopping for something different. 
So a couple of reasons why healthcare is in the spotlight right now, and you mentioned these already, questions around coverage expansion, certainly the rising costs, particularly for consumers themselves, and also just the fact that Americans are a lot sicker, right? You mentioned this, the life expectancy in the U.S. actually went down in 2019 for the second year in a row. Do you know when the last time was that that happened in the United States? It was just at the end of the First World War in 1918 when the world was suffering through the Spanish flu outbreak, which of course was the last major pandemic that the United States experienced before the current one. So I think that's why we saw a lot of candidates supporting Medicare for all. But now, of course, with Bernie out of the race, health policy from the Democrats is more likely to focus on preserving the ACA plus the endorsement of a public option. So Christopher, what actually do we know about Biden's proposal? It's important to remember that 10 years ago, when the ACA was passed, the public option was considered beyond the pale. It couldn't make it through a filibuster-proof Senate that the Democrats Mm -hmm. had. So this is something that was considered very radical a decade ago and is now part of a mainstream candidate's platform. And interestingly, even though it is comparatively less radical than, say, Medicare for All that was proposed by Senator Sanders, it is actually a lot more complicated. There is a lot more uncertainty associated with it. Interesting. So why is it so much more complicated? Well, the Medicare for All option is actually relatively simple to evaluate because it has relatively simple parameters associated with it. But the public option can take lots of different forms and therefore has tons of different variables that could have very different impacts in the industry depending on how they are rolled out. For example, would it be available only to the individual market? Would premiums be subsidized by the government or based on the risk pool? How many consumers or employers would switch to it? And what would the rates be to providers? Would they look more like commercial prices or would they look more like Medicare prices? All of these are hugely consequential, and we just don't know a lot of the details that would be included in a Biden plan. We've actually walked through a number of different scenarios in an analysis that we published recently. I think we can include it in your show notes if you like. Yes, let's definitely do that. And you're right, each of those variables represents potentially significant consequences for the financing and delivery of U.S. healthcare. So what do we actually know about Biden's plan? Well, the impact of a public option really depends on two factors we just mentioned. First, how many people actually switch to the public option? And second, the rates that are paid to providers. Those are the two most important factors we need to know. Okay, so let's talk about each of those. Do we actually have a sense of how many people would actually choose a public option? Well, keep in mind that most Americans under the age of 65 get their insurance from their employer. But in the last few weeks, of course, the unemployment rate has skyrocketed. So estimates show that a projected unemployment rate that could go up to 32%, although that's probably way, way too high, that means that there are a lot more Americans who will be in need of insurance and willing to choose something such as a public option. Okay, so how about provider rates? This has a huge amount of variation based on different types of models that have been proposed, ranging from 100% of Medicare rates to those that look more like commercial rates, which can range as high as 250% of Medicare we would probably expect something somewhere in the middle. I would say that 150% is probably on the high end of what to expect. So I think for the purposes of any analysis, it's important to look at a range of scenarios. And that's something that, Christopher, I know your team has done a lot of. So what are the scenarios that providers can expect? The important takeaway here is that almost all of the scenarios are slightly too moderately negative for hospital reimbursement. So 
For example, if 25% of commercially insured people switch to a public option at Medicare rates, we're looking at a 7% decline in total revenue. That's sort of the worst-case scenario. But if rates are higher, say at 150% of Medicare, even if 25% of commercially insured people switch, providers are still looking at a 2.2% decline. Hmm. So think of it this way. The higher the rates, the fewer the people that are likely to sign up because the premiums are likely to be higher. The lower the rates, the more people that are likely to sign up because the premiums would be lower. But across almost all scenarios, it's still looking like it's going to be a price cut, just unclear how big of a price cut it will be. That's right. And another important part of Biden's plan is that he would allow people eligible for Medicaid in the 14 states that haven't expanded eligibility to buy into the public option with no premiums. Hmm. This would likely also reduce levels of uncompensated care like we've seen in the expansion states, and that could be good news for rural hospitals in particular. And didn't I just hear that Biden put out another proposal aiming to lower the age of Medicare eligibility to 60? Yeah, this was something that was proposed quite a bit in the Democratic debates across the last several months. And for providers, the important takeaway is that this would obviously change the payer mix and shift it much more toward Medicare patients, which financially speaking, is not necessarily all that desirable. But counterintuitively, it could also raise premiums in the individual market Hmm. because it takes the highest paying consumers out of that market and puts them into the Medicare rolls. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. If you want us to cover a topic or have feedback about this podcast, you can leave that right in our iTunes page or email us at podcastsadvisory.com. That's podcasts with an S. So, of course, we're now in the middle of a pandemic. So how is COVID-19 impacting our analyses of scenarios like this? The most important impact COVID is going to have on these analyses is the degree of uninsurance. Because we are seeing a pretty significant impact economic impact as a result of all the social distancing measures and the economic shutdown. As such, that is going to raise the unemployment rate, that is going to raise the uninsurance rate, which will likely make a public option a lot more attractive to people who are currently uninsured. So Paramix makes sense, but I've got to say, I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't say anything about case mix. There's a lot of conversation right now about whether or not just the American population is going to be a lot sicker after the pandemic. It's a little unclear what the overall impact is going to be across all of 2020 and, frankly, into 2021. On the one hand, acute admissions are way, way down right now, not only because we have a reduction in elective surgeries, but we also have huge reductions in influenza admissions, huge reductions in trauma admissions, fewer car accidents that are happening. So we've seen a pretty significant reduction there. On the other hand, we're also seeing people put off screenings that would potentially lead to very significant admissions in the future. So when they do present at the hospital, they're likely to be sicker. So the overall impact right now is a bit unclear. Hmm. And I think it's important as well to talk about how COVID is impacting just how people think about the role of politics in healthcare, because that perception ultimately affects the presidential race and then affects the policy changes that leaders in the industry need to be prepared for. So, Christopher, how is COVID changing perceptions of the federal government and how much power they have in healthcare today? This is the big question, right? We know that most Americans right now want the federal government to be more involved in handling COVID than they have been, at least. 60%, for example, according to a Kaiser poll, 
want the federal government to be in charge of the response to COVID, but just 37% think the federal government is taking the lead compared to 52% who believe that their state is leading it. It's also a bit of a false narrative, I think, to think that the way people are thinking about COVID is just about how much they want the feds to pay for it or to lead it. More involvement in healthcare can take a lot of different forms, ranging from controlling the costs that people have to bear to taking control of supply chains and ensuring adequate capacity. It's those latter points that seem to have generated the most anxiety, and the responses to that don't necessarily reflect party lines. The public narrative is that the state stood up and took over the reaction to this health crisis. Absent a federal response, it will likely embolden them to take a similarly strong stance on future health policy issues. That's my guess. Interesting. And that's something that we saw before, some states being pretty aggressive in their in their health policy actions. So how do we see the balance of state versus federal control in health policy going forward? Well, we've seen a great deal of experimentation at the state level, uh, sometimes with very aggressive measures. So for example, you've got 17 states right now on varying stages of considering or carrying out a public option. You've got things such as Washington's long-term care trust, the five states launching reinsurance programs in 2020, California and Georgia's bills to limit surprise billing, the number of states indexing payment rates to Medicare, value-based drug pricing initiatives, major policy initiatives such as Maryland's global budget and Vermont's all-payer ACO. It is a huge range. I've never seen so much experimentation at the state level as we're seeing now. So a ton of experimentation at the state level, but how successful have any of these individual state experiments actually been? Some of these have been successful, some haven't. Uh, Some are way too early to tell, but the point is that there's been a huge push for state-level health policy experimentation, and the degree of success that they do have could inform federal health policy going forward. Hmm. And let's talk about that federal policy. How do you expect changes in the federal government's approach to handle health policy after the pandemic? I could see this going in a couple of different directions, actually. On the one hand, you have a lot more interest in the federal government having a stronger hand in ensuring adequate capacity. On the other, we have seen a big push toward deregulation that has enabled a lot of different providers to experiment with a number of different care models that can lead to better outcomes potentially. So we could paradoxically see a greater involvement of the federal government in health policy that leads to greater deregulation at the hospital level. Hmm. Sounds counterintuitive. That's what we're best at. (laughs) So I have to ask this question. How is COVID actually changing the perceptions of President Trump and how he's handling things? I knew this question was coming. You are probably hoping that I'm going to either say that the Trump bump is either real or it's temporary. But honestly, I am no political expert, and you did not listen to this podcast to have me prognosticate on where this horse race is going. And honestly, I am not all that confident that the professional pundits have any special knowledge here either. Many apologies to my friends and colleagues in D.C. who have that exact job. Look, I find that when people are asked this question, they typically find reasons to back up what they want to believe is true. And frankly, that is unhelpful at best and narcissistic at worst. What I do know, to the larger point here, is that arguments that both political parties were hoping to make about healthcare, deregulation versus command and control, greater choice versus federalized cost, etc., those arguments are out the window at this point. How our government is viewed relative to other countries following this crisis will be key, And how much cost and complexity voters have to bear in response to COVID will be key. That is what to watch for as we see fluctuations in polls and approval ratings all the way to November. And of course, 
that kind of brings us back to where we started. It's clear that there is going to be significant momentum for change and more focus on the role that healthcare plays in policy and politics in 2020. But I want to ask you, what do you suggest executives actually do to influence the policymakers at this moment? Well, for one, there's probably a lot more ability to influence policymakers at the state level, given all the state experimentation and the focus on the states right now. So if all this state activity really starts to ramp up, it's pretty vital for leaders to decide on what are the top two or three things they want from their state and ultimately from the feds. And then, of course, you need a plan. So think about the board members you want to mobilize and the talking points you want to use to advocate for the things that you want, especially at the state level. And that, of course, brings me to my final question. With all the focus on politics and all the unanswered questions around policy, what should executives be thinking about and doing this week? Well, given the tenor of our conversation, my answer might surprise you, but honestly, the only politics that healthcare executives should be concerned about right now are those that help shore up their near-term cash flow. We will have plenty of time to debate Trump care or Biden care as the election approaches this fall. So in the meantime, have a plan to capture patients and procedures when quarantines lift and focus all of your near-term efforts on getting us through this outbreak. Everything else can wait. So Christopher, thanks so much as always for joining us. What else are you working on this week? COVID, COVID, COVID. Uh, This is something that I have been focused on pretty much nonstop for several weeks now, as most of you probably know. And we have COVID-19 webinars that we have been hosting at Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So if you'd like to be able to join those live, feel free. They're also all archived on advisor.com slash COVID-19. So go ahead and take a look. And we will, of course, put all of those links and any more information that we have around COVID, health policy, and what leaders need to know right in the show notes. Thanks, Christopher. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. Now more than ever before, there is a focus on the government's role in healthcare, both at state and federal levels. And the federal government has turned to unprecedented levels of deregulation as its short-term solution to help providers cope with the pandemic. Think things like allowing your providers to FaceTime their patients or allowing physicians to practice across state lines. Now, some of that deregulation has created a threat for some organizations, but it's also created an opportunity. And it's important for leaders to think through that list of opportunities and threats. At a minimum, you should be coming together as a leadership team and agreeing on how you'll respond. But this is also an opportunity to ask yourselves if any of those things should rise to the top of your advocacy agenda. And if you have questions about the federal government's role, about things that we're predicting on the health policy landscape that are going to be affecting your organizations, ask us those questions. We're here to help.